are listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us, which means if you have never been to church, walked away from the church, or are struggling to find a church to connect with, you belong here. If you aren't following us on social media, make sure to head to Facebook and Instagram and search for My Collective Church to learn more about what is going on at Collective as we start this new year. Thank you again for listening. Now let's get into Sunday's message. Okay, so this is a complete coincidence, uh, but the biggest name announcement in my lifetime happened on Wednesday. After 18 months of 40,000 fan submissions, 1,200 name ideas, focus groups, research, trademarking, branding, and a ton of opinionated people, the Washington football team is now the Washington Commanders. And just give me a second. All right, just give me a second. Uh, And this name was chosen to honor the men and women who have served selflessly in our armed forces and because D.C. is a place where leaders live and work. And I know you have opinions about this because I have opinions about this. So let's talk about this new name for a second. I want to know, do you love it or do you hate it? Not yet. Some of you are very ready to answer that question. Uh, So by a round of applause, I want to know, do you love it? Jeez. Goodness, man. Imagine being the the team right now. Okay, so by a round of applause, do you hate it? (laughs) All right, good. Uh, And by a round of applause, you just don't care. Yeah. Yeah, these people have no idea what we're talking about right now. Uh, I'm just glad, to be honest, that we have a team name now. Next week is the Super Bowl, and we want everyone to wear their favorite sports gear, and I really didn't want to rock a Washington football team t-shirt, so now I feel like I can rock my own gear. Uh, I have other opinions, but I'm not going to share them with you guys because you don't need to know them. But this whole Washington Commanders thing coming out this week is just further proof of what we're talking about in this series, which is that names matter. Because names elicit thoughts and feelings and emotions, right? Whether it's a football team or a restaurant. When I was living in Ohio, there's a burger place by my office called Fat Burger. Uh, And this is a chain restaurant. It's actually uh, pretty heavy on the West Coast. And as much as I love burgers, I couldn't bring myself to eat there because I felt like it was a warning of what would happen if I ate too much of their food. And I get that it was about the size of the burger, but the name pushed me away. Right? And personally, our names are part of our identity. I would guess that most of you have some story that's connected to your name. Right? I know people who are named after family members, people who are named after heroes in the Bible, people whose names have deep meaning, people who name their, their kids after their favorite athletes or TV characters. I know people who are named after cities where their parents met and fell in love or, or maybe where they were conceived because names matter. Right now, we're in the middle of this series called What's in a Name, where we're digging into some of the names of God that we see in the Bible. And throughout the Old and New Testament, God is called by over 1,000 different names, and each one of them describes who he is. It's about his identity and his characteristics, his actions. And today, the name we're going to learn about is Jehovah Naham, which means the Lord is my comfort. Jehovah is one of the most well-known names of God, and it actually comes from the Latinization of the name Yahweh. It's essentially a modern mispronunciation. It comes from combining the consonants of Yahweh, W or Y-H-W-H, 
and the vows of Adonai, A-O-A-I. And so essentially you think about it as Yehoah is what they thought it was, or Jehovah. And just like Yahweh and Adonai, Jehovah means Lord. Now the Hebrew word Naham translates to console or to comfort. And the root of this word actually means to sigh. And I just love this imagery, the idea of God looking down on us and taking a big, deep breath because he feels compassion for us in our pain and in our weaknesses and in our brokenness. Right? It's not a sigh of frustration or exasperation, not rolling his eyes about what we are doing in our own lives, but this heavy sigh you feel when your heart aches for the people that you love. The first time we see this name is in the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. And Isaiah was a prophet, uh, and a prophet is just someone who spoke on behalf of God. Essentially, God spoke to them, and they had to bring that message over to God's people. And in 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar came into Jerusalem with the Babylonian army, and he destroyed the city, destroyed Jerusalem, and he destroyed their temple, which was their place of worship. And he then ended up enslaving the Jewish people. This is called the Babylonian captivity. And that is what's going on throughout this entire book of Isaiah. And so God is speaking through Isaiah to the Israelites who are in exile. And this is what he says in Isaiah 51, verse 12. He says, I, yes, I am the one who comforts you. So why are you afraid of mere humans who wither like the grass and disappear? And so essentially he's saying to Isaiah, hey, go and tell my people who are struggling. Right? Go and tell my people who've been driven out of their homes, who are in the middle of this storm that was lasting 70 years. Go and remind them that I'm not just your God, but I'm your God who brings you comfort. Right? It's this reminder that I'm with you, that I hear you, that I love you, that I will give you the strength to keep going. And remind them that they don't need to worry about what the Babylonians are doing because they're just people and eventually they'll go away, but I am forever. And then a few chapter later, chapters later, they're actually coming out of exile and out of captivity, and God reminds them again in Isaiah 66. This is what the Lord says. I will give Jerusalem a river of peace and prosperity. The wealth of the nations will flow to her. Her children will be nursed at her breast, carried in her arms and held on her lap. I will comfort you there in Jerusalem as a mother comforts her child. So again, God is reminding the Israelites through Isaiah, I am Jehovah Naham. And he uses the imagery of, of a comforting mother, right? as a mother who cares for a child, as a mother who has compassion and mercy, tenderness and love. Right? This is who God is. God is a God of comfort. Right? He is our God of comfort. And I think all this sounds good, uh, but the truth is it can be kind of hard to believe, right, that God is a God of comfort. Because my guess is that many of you feel like God is distant or apathetic, right? You feel like God is cold or maybe even unemotional. My guess is that a lot of you see God uh, like this when we're struggling. No, no, it okay. Don't be cry. Let's watch that one more time. No, no, it okay. Don't be cry. Right, so we assume that God will comfort us in the same way that Tina Fey comforts Matt Damon in this clip from 30 Rock with a pat on the head telling us, hey, it's okay. Don't be cry. 
Or maybe we view God's comfort in the same way uh, that many of our parents comforted us when we were hurting. Stop crying, right? You don't need to cry. (laughs) For those who are millennial or older, this is like speaking to your childhood right now. I will give you something to cry about. (laughs) Right, but God isn't that type of God. God is a loving and caring and understanding God. He is a comforting God. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, Paul explains it like this. These are a few of my favorite verses from the Bible. In Hebrews 4, uh, verse 14, he says, So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. Now, let me just take a moment to explain this. A priest is simply a person that connects normal people to God. And in the Bible, the high priest was the person who ran the temple, And so when people came to worship or to tithe or to make a sacrifice to God, they had to do it through the high priest. He was essentially a mediator. If you grew up in the Catholic church, this probably feels a little familiar to you because if you wanted to talk to God or hear from God, you were most likely told at some point that you weren't really qualified to do that. And so you had to go to a special building, and then you had to go to a special booth where you had to sit down and open this little door, and then you had to ask the priest, could you tell God this thing for me? And he would come back and say, hey, God says to do this. And so the priest communicated for people to God for other people. But Jesus came along and he said, I am your priest. You don't need another person to connect you to God because that's what I came to do. So Jesus is our high priest. He's the one who connects us to God. It continues, and this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Another translation says it like this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one that has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So do you know what this means? It means that Jesus is able to understand our weaknesses and our pain. We have a Savior who understands, who has felt the same things that we have felt, who has had similar trials to our trials. And God's comfort comes from a place of empathy. Now, I want to talk about empathy for a little bit because people often confuse sympathy and empathy, but there are major differences between the two. And so sympathy is a feeling of pity or sorrow for someone else's misfortune. This is honestly how we see God. This is why we think he pats us on the head and says, it's okay, just keep going, right? This is how you feel when your neighbor's father passes away. It's how you feel when you hear this tragic news about something happening in another state or another country. You feel bad. Your heart goes out to them. You feel sorry. But empathy is totally different. Empathy is sitting beside someone in their mess and seeking to understand their feelings. Brene Brown is an author, and she says that empathy fuels connection and sympathy drives disconnection. And this is because empathy brings people together and makes people feel included, while sympathy sympathy creates an uneven power dynamic. I'm offering you something, and what that does is it leads to more isolation and more disconnection. Sympathy often minimizes someone else's pain. It's not that big of a deal. Empathy connects you to that pain. Dr. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar, and she's actually done extensive research on empathy, and she teaches us that there's actually four main attributes to empathy. Attribute one is to be able to see the world as others see it, 
right? To put your own stuff aside and see the situation through someone else's eyes. Attribute two is to be non-judgmental. Judgment of another person's pain and difficulties discounts the experience, and it's actually an attempt for us to protect ourselves from that pain and that situation. Attribute three is to understand another person's feelings. In order to do that, you have to understand your own feelings, so you actually have to start there. But it's pushing aside your own stuff so you can see it through someone else's eyes. And attribute four is to communicate your understanding of that person's feelings, rather than saying, at least you haven't, or it could be worse. It's, I've been there. That really hurts. And to quote an example from Brene Brown, it's, it sounds like you're in a hard place right now. Tell me more about it. Empathy is a skill that strengthens with practice and encourages people to both give and receive that empathy often. And by receiving empathy, not only do we understand how good it feels to be heard and accepted, we also come to a better place of strength and courage that it takes to be vulnerable because we shared the empathy in the first place. And so, God say, or so Paul says God is a God who empathizes with us. Right? That's what God offers us when he comforts us. It's not an attaboy, get back into the game. And what this means is that whatever we are going through, whatever you are going through, when you say to Jesus, I am struggling, he understands. Because Jesus can empathize. He gets our lives. Jesus knows what it's like to lose loved ones. He experienced that. Most scholars believe that his earthly father, Joseph, died while he was a teenager. That's why when you're reading the Bible, you don't hear about him past Jesus' childhood. Jesus knows what it's like to grow up in a dysfunctional family where the siblings don't get along. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by a friend, to suffer for doing what is right, to suffer because others did what was wrong. He knows what it's like to be hungry and poor and misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be misrepresented. Jesus knows what it's like to be surrounded by people but also carry a loneliness that you can feel. He knows what it's like to be exhausted, to be deeply sad, to go through trials. In fact, Jesus even knows what it is like to cry out to God because he's been there. Right? So God comforts us from a place of empathy, of understanding, of being alongside us. And then Paul says this to wrap it up. He says, so let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So when we are struggling, when we are in times of need, we can approach God for the comfort that we long for, and he will give it to us. He will sit beside us in our junk, and he will give us mercy, and he will give us grace. And so now that we have a better understanding of what God's comfort looks like, of the fact that he truly is Jehovah Naham, the question is, what do we do with that? Like, what, what do we actually take away from that. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I want to read through something that Paul wrote uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians. And this is all about God's comfort. He's sending it to a church that's just like us. And this is what he says, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. He says, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. And so if you are taking notes today, here's the first takeaway that you should write down. God is the source of all comfort. Right? God is the source of all comfort. But here's the problem. We have a tendency to seek out comfort in things other than God, don't we? I mean, we have a tendency to seek out comfort in food, which is why it's called comfort food. Had a hard day? 
pizza, stress at work, candy, got dumped, ice cream, still in a pandemic, deep fried goodness. And the truth is, this is me all day. When I'm stressed, I turn to food. Uh, and you, you can judge me for this, but I'm just going to be real with you all right now. My go-to comfort food is sheets, chicken bites, and mozzarella sticks. Listen, I know you think less of me right now. I think less of myself every time I do it. It's okay. If I leave the building during the week, staff's like going to sheets. I'm like, shut up. Yes. I'm going to go sit in my car and listen to a podcast and eat cheese sticks. And yes, for those 20 minutes, that feels pretty good. But food doesn't empathize with my pain, right? Food doesn't give me mercy or tenderness or strength, the things that I'm actually longing for. And maybe for you, it isn't food, but it's something else. You seek out comfort in other vices, things like drugs and sex and alcohol and pornography, or even self-harm. Things that provide a brief dopamine hit to your brain, but that quickly fades and ends up making things worse. Maybe you seek out comfort from another person. We often make the mistake of expecting our spouse or our friends or our family to be the source of our comfort when we aren't doing well. And don't get me wrong, you need to have people in your life that, should, that will offer you comfort. We should have a good community that empathizes with us when we're struggling, when we're hurting, when we're in pain. But the truth is, and we know this deep down, our friends and family can't be the source of our comfort because there will be times that they fail because they're people. To be honest, some of you have marriage problems right now because instead of looking to God, you look to your spouse and you expect him to be God, and they are not. And because they aren't God, they fall short, which is understandable, or they offer a form of comfort that is incomplete, that's good but not great, that's not what God would offer you. And your response to that is to get angry. But the reality is that you're putting things on your spouse that are unhealthy. When you try to find comfort in the things of this world, you won't actually experience the comfort that God intended. Only God can be our source of comfort. But let's dig a little bit deeper into this. So the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And we learned earlier that the Hebrew word for comfort is naham. But the Greek word for comfort is paraklesis, uh, which comes from the root word paraklesios. Breaking it down, para means alongside, and klesis comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call. So the word comfort literally means to call alongside. So from God's perspective is that he comes alongside of us in our trials and in our pain and in our brokenness. That's cool, right? But that isn't even the coolest part. A form of the word paraklesios is used by Jesus in John 14 to describe the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this in John 14, 26, but when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything that I've told you. And so the word advocate that Jesus uses is paraclete, which means one that is called for help or support or comfort. So are you with me still? So one of the ways that God comforts us is through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit being God in us. And Jesus teaches us through this verse that the Holy Spirit has two roles, to teach us, right, to guide us in the right direction, and to comfort us. And so putting this as bluntly as I can, some of you do not feel comforted in your trials because you are searching for comfort in the wrong places, in places other than God. You have the wrong source. 
Food, addictions, people, work, money, all the wrong source. Ultimately, you are looking to the things of this world to bring you comfort. And because of that, your comfort will always feel incomplete. And this is because you do not have the Holy Spirit. You do not have the Spirit of God living inside of you. And so if you long for comfort that is full of grace and mercy, you go to the source. And Scripture teaches us that the way you receive the Holy Spirit is through baptism. Acts 2.38, Peter says this, each must of you must repent of your sins and turn to God, which means to change your mind and to walk away from life that you're living and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the paraclete, the comforter, and that Holy Spirit is there to give you comfort. But you have to start at the source. You have to start with God. Right? So if you want that comfort and everything else that comes with that, that is something you are longing for in your life, your biggest takeaway, your biggest next step today is to check the box about baptism. It's to go to next steps and to check that box so we can have a conversation with you about what does it look like to accept that gift, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, that comforter into your life. And when you do that, someone will call you this week. You're not going to go through it alone. Someone will call you this week so they can talk to you about it. Okay, let's go back to what Paul wrote. So God is the source of our comfort, and it continues, and he comforts us in all of our troubles. And so here's the next thing that Paul teaches us about God's comfort. Comfort comes when there are trials, which is good news because trials are a part of life. Jesus said it like this in John 16. He says, I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And the truth is, this takeaway kind of sucks, right? I mean, if we had to choose between trouble and being comforted by God or no trouble and no comfort, we would rather have no trouble. But we all know this. Trouble is a part of life. And I'm sorry about that. Like, I truly am. I wish it wasn't that way. But God never promises that this life will be easy. God never promises that following Jesus will make everything perfect. In fact, if a Christian has ever told you following Jesus will make all of your troubles go away, they're lying, and they are very delusional about what God teaches. If you ever heard a church say, if you just had more faith, you wouldn't be dealing with that pain or that problem or that trouble or that brokenness, that's wrong. Yes, our sin makes life harder than it needs to be. Us choosing not to walk in alignment with God will create trials for us, but following God doesn't make all those problems go away. God promises that there will be trials and there will be sorrow, but God also promises that he will give us comfort through it all. And that comfort brings peace. That comfort brings strength. That comfort brings safety. That comfort brings courage. So instead of trying to live a life without trials, which isn't even possible, embrace the comfort that comes along with the trials that are inevitable. And so God is the source of our comfort, and his comfort comes when there are trials. And, this is, and here's the third thing that Paul teaches, and this is actually a challenge that he gives to the church. He says he comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given. So God comforts us so that we can comfort others. We're told to pay it forward to learn what comfort looks like from God, to learn what empathy looks like 
and then bring that into our relationships so people can experience Jehovah Naham. I once heard a pastor say it like this. He said, your pain is your platform. Meaning if you've gotten any comfort from God, then you need to pass it on. And here's the thing. The thing about pain and trials and trouble is that we tend to want to leave it in the past. And I wish we could. I wish we could move on from that thing and pretend that it never happened or God healed it and we didn't have the scars to show for it. But that's not how a Christian life works because that's not how life works. And if you don't recognize that your pain is your platform, you are short-circuiting the comfort that God wants you to give to other people in your life. And make sure you hear me when I say this. The people around you don't need to know that God has fixed everything that everything is miraculously perfect again. What they need to see is that when things hit the fan, when trouble truly hits, that God actually is there, that God actually cares, that God gets you through the pain that you are feeling. So God comforts us so that we can comfort others. And listen, I'm not saying this is why God lets bad things happen, right? Bad things happen because sin exists in this world. And I'm not saying that God made that thing happen just so that you can comfort others. What I'm saying is that if we have to go through trouble, which we do, then we might as well look at a bright spot that the things that we've experienced in our life help us comfort other people and share with them about a God who loves them. And so God is Jehovah Naham. He is our comfort. In our trials and in our pain, he lifts us up. He gives us mercy and grace. He gives us strength and tenderness and love. He gives us peace. He shows us empathy and seeks out connection to us and our pain. And then he tells us to bring that same comfort into the world. In California, there's a place called the Death Valley, and it's found in the Mojave Desert. And Death Valley is one of the hottest places on earth, typically reaching temperatures of 130 degrees in the summer. It's also the driest place in North America. On average, they get less than two inches of rain per year, and sometimes they don't get any. And just for context, we've already had two inches of rain in Frederick this year. But in the winter of 2005, six inches of rain fell on the dry and barren land, creating a once-in-a-decade phenomenon called a super bloom. And so it turned Death Valley uh, from this, this, this desperate, uh, dead place, and it turned it into this. And so the normally forbidding landscape was alive with colors and vibrancy that it hadn't seen in almost 50 years. And when thinking about the comfort that God gives to his people, I can't help but think it feels a little bit like this. Life in the dead spaces of our hearts. Life in the dry seasons of our marriage, in our career, in our addictions. Life coming through the pain and sorrow that we feel. I believe that's what God, God's comfort brings to our troubles. And that's what we should want in our lives and what we should want for the people that we love. So if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you've never been baptized, start there. Start at the source, start with God. But if you are someone who has seen and felt the comfort in your own trials, who has felt that comfort in the dead and barren seasons of your own life, now it is time to bring that comfort to other people. Let's pray.
God, I think it's hard for us um, to see you as a God who empathizes because oftentimes it feels like we're all alone in our pain. It feels like we're all alone in these trials. And, and God, we understand that a lot of times we cause them ourselves, but a lot of times we don't. God, we didn't ask for the last two years to happen. God, we didn't cause that. And sometimes as we go through these things, we feel like you're distant, but the truth is we read over and over and over again in the Bible that you're here, that you're not only in front of us, God, but you're sitting beside us in our pain and in our misery and in our brokenness, and you're saying, hey, I get it. I felt that. I know that's hard. So God, I, I pray as we, as we go through trials and we go through troubles, uh, as we experience this brokenness in our life, God, that we recognize that one of your jobs, one of your roles is to comfort us, to give us strength, to give us peace, to show us tenderness and mercy and grace. And God, we want that in our lives. God, we want that when we are struggling. God, we want that when our lives feel like Death Valley. But God, I pray as we receive that and as we feel that, God, as, as the Holy Spirit moves in us in that comfort, God, that it moves us to bring that comfort outside of the walls of this space, into the walls of our homes, and our work, and our community. God, because the comfort you gave is not just comfort for us, but comfort for all. And you trust us to bring it to them. So God, help us be people of comfort. Um, ultimately, God, help us be people of empathy. God, that we don't try to have a power dynamic. Uh, we don't pat them on the head and say, hey, good luck. But we sit beside them and say, hey, that sucks. Good news, I have a God who understands as well. God, thank you that you understand our pain. We love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.